You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. For uh, Sunday, or for church service, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because we're dealing with that text in John 7. So since we can't really deal with everything that could be dealt with on the subject of the Holy Spirit in one 40-minute message, I figure we take Sunday school and we'll go through some stuff that we're not going to cover about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit this morning. So let's uh, begin with a word of prayer and then we will get started. Our Father, we are grateful to you that you have revealed yourself in Scripture and you have told us that There is but one God, and that our God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we are grateful for that revelation, for we would never know to be able to worship you as you are, apart from you revealing these truths to us. We thank you for the blessing that it is to have your word and its clarity, and we pray that you would grant to us understanding and insight and illumination as we study. Our desire is that we may be able to apprehend what is before us. We know that we'll never fully be able to understand it, comprehend it, but we do ask that you would help us to embrace the, what we see in Scripture and to begin to wrap our minds around this great revelation of who you are. Thank you for your grace and your kindness, and we pray, O oh, now Spirit of God, that you would help us to understand the doctrine of the Blessed Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the Trinity. We ask this in Christ's name for the glory of our God. Amen. All right, so let's... Uh, Let's begin with, uh, we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and how it relates to the doctrine of the Trinity. Several months ago, we dealt with the doctrine of the Trinity in John chapter 5, and then we kind of had a Sunday school where we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity in a little bit more in-depth. There seems to be within evangelicalism kind of this, this range of reaction to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. On the far one extreme is what we would call the extreme charismatic movement. So over here you would have Toronto Blessing, you would have Word Faith Movement, you would have the people who think that the manifestations of the Holy Spirit include falling down and barking like a dog and, and being in a comatose state or uh, making you incontinent, things like that is on the one extreme of, uh, even, of what we broadly call evangelicalism. Okay, So you have the sort of the extreme charismatic on one side. On the other side of evangelicalism is the far other extreme where we are so afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit or mention the Holy Spirit or worship the Holy Spirit, that we don't want to be confused with those wackos on the other side. So over here you have the people who almost neglect the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because they don't want to be associated with anybody who would, who would sort of be part of anything with that member of the Trinity. And I think sometimes we fall into one of those, everybody falls on that spectrum somewhere. So I'd ask you, I would ask you, where do you think you are on that spectrum? If you're attending here for more than one week, you're not over here in this camp because we don't have any of those, what we would call bizarre manifestations of the Holy Spirit. At the same time, I would hope that you're not on the far other extreme of that camp, where you neglect the Holy Spirit, don't want to talk about Him, and don't want to be involved in anything that He's involved with, because you don't want anything that's sort of out of your comfort zone. So, barring those two extremes, where would you be at on this spectrum? Just give some thought to it for a second. The second question, because I'm going to come back to this at the very end, the second question kind of pertaining to that is if you would view yourself as right in the middle of those two extremes, 
where do you lean naturally? Do you feel yourself sort of pulled toward a charismatic bent on the Holy Spirit that you got to kind of constantly be pulling yourself back from? Or do you feel yourself sort of pulling over here to this side of the spectrum where you would tend to neglect the doctrine of the Holy Spirit simply because you want to sort of move away from what you see as abuses of the Holy Spirit? Right? So where on that spectrum do you fall? And having sort of pinpointed that, which direction do you lean? You're going to answer this already? Go ahead. Okay, we're going to get to that in just okay, a second. So you're asking us a question, but you're not stating what your definition is first. Well, I'm giving you two extremes, and I painted them pretty, pretty, pretty uh, colorfully. And so I'm assuming you're not in either one of those. So I would say that what I'm going to try and present to you is somewhere in the middle, because that's actually where I think the truth is, is somewhere in this middle land. So we'll get to that in just a second. Um, of the three members of the Trinity, by the way, recently there was uh, John MacArthur and his it was the evening services at Grace Church has been doing a series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which has been really just stellar phenomenal. He started off this series by pointing out something I wanted to share with you. Of all three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I think that today within evangelicalism, the Holy Spirit is the most blasphemed member of the Trinity. The Father is blasphemed in some ways. The Son is blasphemed in other ways. The Father is blasphemed by open theists who say that God doesn't know the future. Um, the Son is blasphemed by the emergent church who says he didn't die on a cross, and, and those who deny his deity blaspheme his name. But of all three members of the Trinity, today I think within evangelicalism, the most blasphemed member of the Holy Spirit, or the, of the Trinity, is the Holy Spirit. Here's how the Holy Spirit is blasphemed. A number of ways, but let me just point out a couple. The Holy Spirit is blasphemed when people deny that he is God, or refuse to embrace him as a person of the Trinity, he is blasphemed when we neglect to worship Him or thank Him or recognize Him or praise Him or pray to Him. Those are acts of blasphemy. Any, any neglect of the Holy Spirit is an act of blasphemy. But he is, he is blasphemed by the extreme charismatics within evangelicalism in this way. Anytime we attribute to God something that is said or done, anytime we attribute an, an act or a deed to God that He has not done is an act of blasphemy. So when we attribute to the Holy Spirit acts which are carnal, fleshly, selfish, self-aggrandizing, those are acts of blasphemy. When we attribute to the Holy Spirit something that the Spirit said to me, when in fact God has not said that, that's an act of blasphemy. Which is why any Christian who says, the Lord spoke to me and told me, if it's not a quotation of directly out of Scripture, that I believe is an act of blasphemy. Because we are attributing to God saying something when in fact He has not said it. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. To attribute to the Holy Spirit deeds which go on in evangelicalism, like barking like a dog and falling down uncontrollably and wetting your pants and all of the other fleshly indulgences that go on in the name of Christianity, when those are attributed as works of the Holy Spirit, when in fact those are not what the Holy Spirit produces, that's an act of blasphemy. It is, it is blaspheming the Holy Spirit by saying God has done this when in fact God has not done that. That's how the Holy Spirit is blasphemed. We want to avoid that, and we want to avoid blaspheming Him by neglecting Him, on the other hand, by having a right understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. All right, are you ready? Okay, so we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm going to give to you the sta a statement on the doctrine of the Trinity, and then we'll kind of work our way through uh, the Holy Spirit as God and the Holy Spirit as a person. The doctrine of the Trinity, do you remember this from John chapter 5? I told you you needed to memorize this statement, the definition of the doctrine of the Trinity, and you all remembered it. 
I didn't either because I had to look it up in this book, which I'd recommend, by the way. The Forgotten Trinity by James White. This is probably the single best book on the doctrine of the Holy of the, of the the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that I think is in print. There's another one that I started reading here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was about a week ago called The Trinity by Lorraine Bettner. He's an old Reformed theologian. He wrote a book. It's a short one called The Doctrine of the Trinity, which is really concise, really well written, very understandable, and that's another excellent book. The doctrine of the Trinity is this. There, within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Within the one God, within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-eternal, co-equal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the doctrine of the Trinity is that we have one God, one nature, one substance that is God. It is indivisible. It's indistinguishable. It's one nature and substance, but at the same time, there is three persons who share that nature and are that substance. So that the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son are not each one-third God. Each of them are fully God, full deity, and they share that substance and that nature in its entirety. So if you have the Holy Spirit present, you have all of God, not a third of God or a half of God. You have all of God there. And they cannot be divided. The substance and being cannot be divided so that this part of God belongs to the Holy Spirit and this part of God belongs to the Father and this belongs to the Son. We don't divide it up that way. There's one nature, one being, who is God, so that God is one. But at the same time, there is in Scripture three persons, all who are called God, all who have done the works of God, and all who are given the attributes of God. So those three persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. By the way, have you heard the term Holy Ghost? Yeah, that's kind of the old King James way of referring to it. I don't like that phrase, just that term, just because it conjures up something in our minds that I don't think is... Might have been appropriate in 1611. It's really not appropriate today. So we just, I use the term Holy Spirit. So there is one true and living God. That's the first part of the doctrine of the Trinity. And then second, while God in his nature is one, nevertheless there exists three distinct persons. So by personhood, we are talking about not being or ontological being, but persons, character, characters or self-conscious egos within the Trinity. So when you look at the Trinity, You can have the Father speaking to the Son or about the Son, the Son speaking to the Father or about the Father, or the Spirit speaking to the Son or about the Son. These three persons can each communicate with each other, can express love toward one another, and can request things of each other because they are three separate and distinct persons. So this is contra to what we would call modalism. The doctrine of modalism is that God exists as one being and one person who manifests himself three different ways. So this would be like a stage actor who comes out and he steps out on stage, he's wearing a costume as the father and he presents himself as the father. And then he steps off the stage, changes clothes, comes back on, presents himself as the son, steps off the stage, changes his clothes, comes back on, presents himself as the spirit. That would be modalism. Three manifestations or relationships that one person has. That's not what we mean when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is one God, but three separate and distinct persons who have always existed and are equal to each other. So the Father can speak to the Son and about the Son, to the Spirit and about the Spirit, and there can be a three-way conversation between the members of the Trinity, but they are all the one God. They share the same purpose. They share the same nature. They share the same intentions. They do not fight. They're never in conflict. They never disagree with one another. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. Any questions on that so far? Brian? Yeah, our inability, that's a good point, our inability to understand the doctrine does not mean that it does not exist. Right? I, I don't understand the doctrine of the virgin birth. I accept it as true. How, do, how does a virgin conceive? 
conceived by the Holy Spirit, who is a, a member of the Blessed Trinity, who doesn't have a physical body. How, how is this possible? I don't understand how it's possible, but that doesn't negate the truth of it. And there are a lot of doctrines like that. The inspiration of Scripture. How does God inspire His Word? How, did, how did exactly did He do that? I can't comprehend that fully, but I accept it as true. And same thing with the doctrine of the Trinity. Just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not true. It's, it's revealed in Scripture. And so we are forced by Scripture to account for the fact that there is one God. Scripture affirms this from Genesis to Revelation. There's one God. And yet Scripture calls this person, the Father, God. It calls the Son God. And it calls the Holy Spirit God. And all three of these persons are said to be God and is said to function as God and do things that only God can do. And yet these three people also, these three persons also speak to each other and relate to each other in love. So from eternity past, and this will boggle your mind, what did God do before He created the world? Was He lonely? You were thinking about this yesterday while mowing your lawn? Well, He wasn't lonely. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit eternally existed together. Yeah, you, you can't. You can't dwell on it. But there's there was a relationship that existed there where the three of them loved one another and communicated with one another for eternity past before there ever was a creation. That's a beautiful thing. God did not create because He's lonely. He was perfectly fulfilled in Himself. He doesn't need us. So He didn't create us because He was lonely and He needed somebody to spend the rest of eternity with. Because God had the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to be with. The three persons were together and they were completely met each other's needs for communication and fellowship and oneness and unity. All right, so where were we at before you asked your question? Brian? The word Trinity is never found in Scripture. That's right. But the word Trinity is a word that we use to describe a doctrine that is found in Scripture. So it is a, it's a biblical term in the sense that we are using a term to describe a, what the Bible does teach about this doctrine. All right. So we affirm that there is one God, and we affirm that these three persons are all called God. We'll look at a couple of passages that describe the Holy Spirit as God, and we're just going to look at a couple of these. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 5. This is one I always love to, to uh, bring up when a Jehovah's Witness knocks on my door. Acts chapter 5. This is the account of Ananias and Sapphira. And the reason this is good when a Holy Spirit knocks on your door is because the, Holy Spirit, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the Holy Spirit is nothing but God's active force, His active power. So when you want to describe God in, in language of a Jehovah's Witness, when you want to describe God's power, His activity, His actions, you speak of the Spirit of God doing this because Spirit is just a way to describe sort of that active energy which accomplishes something. God's power on display is what they would say is the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 5, we'll just start at the very beginning. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? So who did who did Ananias lie to? Peter says, you have lied to. Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Look at the rest of verse 4. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Okay, so there is a statement where Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, and then Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit, you have not lied to men, you have lied to God. So that is where the Holy Spirit is explicitly called by Peter, God. Now, I always ask, I always bring that up, and they say, well, he was just lying to God's active power. I said, how do you lie to an energy? This is what I asked Jehovah's Witness. How do you lie to an energy force? How do you lie to a power? You can't lie to electricity. You can't lie to the sun. You can only lie to a person. 
somebody who is a person. You can only lie to them. So the Holy Spirit is God. It's not describing God's force. It's not describing part of God's nature. It's describing a person to whom Ananias and Sapphira lied. You have lied to to God. Verse 5, And he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon over, over all who heard of it. And the young man got up and covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. And then the wife came in, and of course Peter said the same thing. She had buried, or she had lied to God as well. She had colluded with Ananias in lying to God, to the Holy Spirit. Turn to 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit because there's a parallelism in verse 11. And Paul is making the argument that uh, we rely upon the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We rely upon Him for power in preaching, for power in ministry, um, because the Spirit of God is revealed to us, the mind of God and the things of God. We know God's mind because the Spirit of God reveals that to us by His indwelling. So then in verse 11 you say, Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? And so how is it possible to know the thoughts of a man? I can't know what Stephen is thinking, can I? The only one who can know what Stephen is thinking is the spirit of Stephen who is in him. He's the only one who can discern what he's thinking right now. He could be thinking the most horrible thoughts toward me possible. But I can't know that. Nobody else in this room can know it. The only one who can know that is the spirit of Stephen, the spirit of the man that is in him. And look at the rest of the verse. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Right? So who is the spirit of God? He is the one who knows the thoughts of God. That same Holy Spirit who understands the thoughts of God because He is God, He is God and so He knows the thoughts of God. Who knows God's thoughts? Can anybody except God know God's thoughts? No, the Spirit of God knows God's thoughts. So what does that make Him? It makes Him God. He is God. He's full deity because He understands the thoughts of God. In Matthew 28, verse 19, this is the Great Commission. This is the last one we'll look at as far as showing that the Holy Spirit is God. Matthew chapter 28. Verse 19, the Great Commission, Jesus said in verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing him in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go and preach and make disciples and baptize them in the name, singular, because the name of God is one, because God is one God. That's the singularity of the unity of God. But it's the name of the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's one God, but three separate persons. All of these three persons are the same God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So here you have the founder of Christianity basically saying, the God that you have worshipped under the Old Covenant that is one God, now you are to worship Him and disciple other people to worship Him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's Jesus revealing to us as He's leaving the earth that the God that we worship is a Trinitarian, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Jesus basically saying as he's leaving, the God that you, I want you to worship, you now worship him with full revelation as three distinct persons in the one God. Something that wasn't understood, it was alluded to in the Old Testament, but not understood in the Old Testament, not fully revealed. It is the coming of the Son and the glorification of the Son and the giving of the Spirit that now we understand by full revelation that the God of the Old Testament was a triune God. You see the the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. You see God referring to himself in in the plurality in the Old Testament. But you don't see the full revelation of the three distinct persons all called God until you get into the New Testament. All right, any questions before we move on? The next one? Anybody can see that the Holy Spirit is God? He knows the thoughts of God, therefore he is God. Let's look at the Holy Spirit as a person. 
turn to the book of Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at a few things here that the Spirit of God does that indicate His personality. The Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8. One thing that is unique about the Spirit of, uh, the references to the Spirit in the New Testament, the New Testament does not refer to the Holy Spirit as it, which you would use to refer to a non-personal entity. Right? If I referred to Stephen as it, sorry to use you as an example, but you're right here, this is where Lanny usually sits. So whenever I need an example to tease somebody, I point over here. So if I refer to Stephen as an it, that would be an offense to him because he is a person. It is appropriate to refer to him as a him because I speak of him in the third person using a pronoun, he or him or his. That's appropriate because he is a person. But we describe things that are non-personal that do not have ontological being or ontological nature of, of a being as being it. The chairs we refer to as it. The projector is an it. This pulpit is an it. My tie is an it. We don't refer, it's inappropriate to refer, refer to ships as she, right? We understand that ships really don't have a gender, even though we call boats she. She's taken on a lot of water, but that's inappropriate. We should refer to it as an it. I didn't mean to insult every woman in here. I'm getting these looks like I've done something inappropriate. That is inappropriate to call something that is an inanimate, non-personal object a he or a she. We refer to things that have being, that are alive and have personality and being as he or she because they have gender, because they have being. So look at verse chapter 8, verse 29 in the book of Acts. 8, 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go and join this chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? So here is Philip, who is a minister in the early church, being given directions by the Holy Spirit, who speaks. Powers don't speak, right? Electricity does not speak. The sun does not speak. Energy forces do not speak. What speaks? Persons speak, right? Ontological beings speak. So the Holy Spirit speaks and says something to Philip. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 19. Peter had the vision of all the animals on the sheet that was brought down, preparing him for his meeting with Cornelius. In verse 19, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Get up and go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. So here is the Holy Spirit giving instruction to Peter, saying, I have sent them. Now, energy forces and powers don't speak. What speaks? Person speaks. So here you have a person of the Trinity. It's not the Father. It's not the Son. You see this, that Peter did not hear anything spoken by the Father. It doesn't identify it as the Father. It doesn't identify it as the Son. Philip, uh, not Philip, Stephen saw the Son, saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God when he was stoned. But, so, but Peter doesn't identify the one as being spoken, as speaking to him as being the Son or the Father, but it is the Spirit that speaks to Peter, Spirit, Spirit that speaks to Philip. Look at Acts chapter 19 verse 20. Um, oh no, that, sorry, that was, we just read that. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. This is the beginning of Paul's missionary journey. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. When they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So who is it that called Paul and Barnabas into ministry? It was the Holy Spirit who said, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul. So if you had asked Paul or Saul, Who is it that commissioned you to ministry? What would he have said? would have said the Holy Spirit, right? And yet you can read Paul's writings and he clearly feels that he was commissioned by whom? By God. Right? It was God who gave him his commission. It was God who called him. Because the Holy Spirit is God. For the Holy Spirit to issue that call to Paul and Barnabas 
was for God to give them that direction and call them into ministry and appoint them into ministry. That's how Paul would have viewed it. So the Holy Spirit speaks, he commissions, he directs, he reveals truth, he sends people, he's directing the growth of his church all the way through the book of Acts. We see the Holy Spirit very active in speaking and revealing things to people. That is an indication of his person. Yeah? What would I think if my friend Brian Atmore said, hey, Jim, the Holy Spirit spoke directly to me? What would I think? Well, I would think that, number one, he had lost his marbles, um, because Brian Atmore would absolutely never say that under any circumstances. But I understand what you're saying. Hypothetically, if somebody said that to me. Well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't believe it. And I, I, the question, and this is the question is, do I believe now? Really, the question behind your question is, do I believe that under any circumstances that people can claim today to have direct revelation apart from the Word of God by the Holy Spirit through a vision or a dream or a still small voice or a prompting or a nudging or something like that? And the answer to that question is, I do not believe that that happens today. Now, when Christians use that terminology or that lingo, usually what we mean is, I felt convicted, I felt uh, I felt grieved by something, or I just couldn't get something off my mind, I felt my heart compelled in a certain direction, I felt called to this, those may or may not be the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I can't know that because there's no light that goes on on my forehead that tells me when I'm getting led by the Holy Spirit. But I can, but I do believe that the Spirit of God providentially leads us. I believe He reveals truth through us through Scripture and He illuminates God's Word to us. I believe that the place that we hear God speak is right here in this book. And I can't rest upon any private revelation that I have. Um, Hebrews chapter 1 says that God has spoken to us through apostles and prophets in times, former times. But this, but now the final revelation of God is in His Son. Everything that God has needed to say to fallen humanity, He has said in His Son and in the full revelation of His Word. So that what we have in our Bible is sufficient for life and godliness. It is utterly and completely sufficient for everything I need. So if, if Brian were to say to me or somebody I respected were to say to me, look, the Holy Spirit directly revealed this to me, I would approach it with the, I can't even tell you how much skepticism and unbelief I would approach that with. I would need to have some sort of proof. What's that? Orally. Yeah, I, I just, yeah, I would have to ask him what I don't, I can't, I can't accept that. I can't prove that. I can't base anything on that. You had an experience. That's all that is, is an experience. Yeah, I, I would. I could tell Brian that because I'm close enough to him, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't feel compelled to believe that somebody's re- receiving private revelation simply because of my love and affection for them or because of their stature in spirituality. The Holy Spirit can speak to me through a leprechaun in my fridge. But that doesn't mean that I have warrant to believe that He actually is going to do it or that He does it on a regular basis. The Holy Spirit can do anything He wants. He's God. But the question is, what what should I expect? What do I build doctrine on? Yeah, the Scripture. That's it. So... We, the, the Holy Spirit relates to us because He is the indwelling member of the Godhead in our, in us. He relates to us so intimately and personally that when we experience that intimacy and that fellowship, we, we'd like to throw around Christian jargon like God spoke to me or the Holy Spirit spoke to me or revealed to me or He led me. That's, that's being too loose with our vocabulary. I don't think that accurately, we need to tighten that up. And I tell people we need to tighten that up and use biblical language. The Spirit of God illuminated a passage to me. Right, So this just this last week, and I forget which one it was, I was reading one of the Psalms, and there was something I saw in the Psalms that I never saw, no, never seen before. You had that happen to you. Okay, well, that's the Spirit of God illuminating, you're opening your eyes to something and drawing truth, drawing your heart toward truth, energizing your heart toward God, inclining your heart toward Him, 
we feel those very personal, warm fellowship moments with the Holy Spirit from time to time, depending. Sometimes it's dry, sometimes it's not, very personal. But we use terminology that's not appropriate. The Spirit spoke to me and told me I should call you. Well, did He really speak to you or were you just on my mind for some reason? Maybe I was praying for you and I just can't get you off of my mind, so I call you. I said, I can't, I don't know that that's the Holy Spirit leading me to do that. It could just be that that's just the inclination of my heart because you and I are good friends and so I call you. So it might be that the Holy Spirit is, is, is working in such a way as to providentially guide my steps to the point where I feel compelled to do something. But the danger comes when we, when we without knowing that for certain, attribute that to the Holy Spirit and say, that was the Spirit guiding me. I've had things work out really well in my life, providentially, but I would never go back and say, well, it was the Holy Spirit who, who He guided me and He told me to do this and He directed my feet to do that. Well, maybe, maybe not. I've had things work out really well in my life where I was pursuing something in my own flesh entirely for my own motives, and I got to point X, Y, and Z on the plan and realized this is exactly where God wanted me. But I'll tell you what, I wasn't being moved by the Holy Spirit back then. It was my flesh that was moving me, but God worked that out so that I ended up being right where He wanted me to be. But it wasn't I wasn't moved or motivated by the Holy Spirit to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's true. God will not lie and He will not go against His own nature. So I guess my, my point with the leprechaun in the fridge is that God is capable of doing anything that He can do by His nature. God is a speaking God, and the Holy Spirit could. Um, there's nothing... There's nothing about the act of revealing Himself to us or speaking to us that's contrary to the nature of the Holy Spirit. Right? The question is whether the Holy Spirit would ever, whether we need to be guided or directed in that way by the Holy Spirit or not. And my answer is we don't. There's, there's nothing that God can ever say to me that He's not already said to me. There's nothing that I need. This is not insufficient. There's no decision I can ever make that I would have to need some extra guidance that's not in here. All the guidance I could ever need for any decision or any function of my life from the moment of my salvation to going home to glory to my graduation day, all the guidance I could need is right here. Every principle, every truth I need to know is revealed in here. So for the person who says, well, now the role of the Holy Spirit is to just guide me apart from this. Well, I don't I don't need that. There's nothing insufficient about this book. It might be my knowledge of this book which is insufficient. I'll grant you that. But there's nothing about this book that's insufficient. And that's why the constant testimony of the apostles and Scripture is to the book. To the book. Go to the book. Everything we need is in the book. He has written it down. He has written it down perfectly for us to follow and to know. I'll give you a, an illustration. I'm not sure if I shared this in a newsletter article or Sunday school or a sermon. Let's say that I, and I borrow this illustration from Greg Kokel of Stand to Reason, who has done a lot of work on this issue of where the Holy Spirit guides us. Uh, and I'm pulling this out of a deep memory bank somewhere, so I hope I get all of this right. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say I am the owner of a massive corporation and I am make, I'm making a ton of decisions each and every day and I hire you to step in to my position and so that I can step away from that and you can make all the decisions on my behalf. And then because of this, this massive corporation requires so many decisions and so many, I mean, pencils that need to be bought all the way up to who needs to be hired and fired and future of the company and stocks and all of that, I write all of it down in a manual. Here's everything you need to know about the corporation. It's all written down in the in the owner's CEO's manual. Everything you need to know is right in here. Would I then need to give you my personal cell phone number and say to you, anytime you need to make a decision, you just call me and I will guide you through that decision. 
if I have written to you in the book everything that you need to know, what was the point of giving you the cell phone number? I could do, I could, I could give you the guidance in two ways. I could write everything down for you, or I could say, here's my cell phone number, just call me when you need help. If I give you my cell phone number, why would I go through all of the work of writing this down for you to follow the instructions? Why would I do that? Because when you have a decision to make, what are you going to do? You're just going to call me. Right? What's the point of giving you the book if you can just call me and, and get my, my answer on it? It's the same thing with having the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He has given to us all of His truth. So what's the point of giving us all of His truth if all we have to do is just ask and He reveals it to us? Right? This, this seems to me like a lot of wasted effort. If everything I need, I can just ask Him and He's going to reveal it to me personally and privately. Thomas? Yep, that's not... No, no, that's not the phone call. The phone call is personal revelation. The, the, what, we're, what you're describing is illumination, which is the opening up of my heart and mind to what is written. But the Spirit of God doesn't do that apart from Scripture. He never leads us away from the book to say, just come over here, away from the book, come over here, and I'll give you the guidance that you need. He never does that. What He wants us to do is go to the book and to read and to know and to study and to learn, to love, to memorize this book so that it's in our hearts and we are filled. The more I am filled with Scripture, the more I am filled with the Spirit of God. And the more I am filled with Scripture, the more control over me and influence over me the Spirit of God has. So He wants to do that through the book, but that's an act of illumination, not revelation. All right, any other questions on that before we move on much behind schedule? Go ahead, Jenny. Okay, so the question is then, how does the Holy Spirit guide, and she used me as an example, could refer to anybody who teaches or writes an article or something, how does the Holy Spirit guide us in preparing or doing that and, and uh, revealing truth? You use the term inspiration, which is a dangerous one to use. I understand what you mean by that. What you mean is the Spirit of God involved in this so that the final product is what He wants. But, by inspiration proper, the doctrine, we're talking about the inscripturation of Scripture, so we keep that separate because we use the term inspiration to refer to what God has written down and the poem that I wrote this last week, which really felt inspired. And so we kind of muddy the term inspiration in that way. So the question is then, how then does the Holy Spirit work through me, or how do, how do I experience the Holy Spirit in preparing a sermon? So I'm going to give you a biographical or a very personal answer on this. When I sit down to study Scripture, my view is that the, the text is king, and my desire and prayer is that in the studying of it, I would see things that the Spirit of God would reveal truth to me, preserve me from error, and guide my study, my thoughts, my preparation so providentially that the outcome of this when I preach is what is the meaning of the text and the Spirit's intention in the text. And so I don't have any personal revelations where I'm sitting down and saying, oh, that's a great thought, thanks Holy Spirit, and I write that down. My mind is, my mind is chewing on Scripture constantly, and on the passage, and I'm taking in what other people are saying, I'm reading it, I'm analyzing it, I'm calling out stuff that I don't think fits with the text, I'm taking stuff that I do think is a good illumination or illustration or explanation of the text, and I'm incorporating all of that, and I'm trusting that as I put forth the energy, that the Spirit of God is going to take that final product and use it in ways that I can't expect. So one of my prayers every week, and it's usually toward the end of the week as I'm beginning to put together the final touches of manuscript, my prayer is, Spirit of God, help me to prepare food that is necessary for the people that are sitting there that will meet the needs of the people who come. Unfelt needs and felt needs and needs that I don't even know exist. Then, since it is the Spirit's desire to glorify the Father through the Son in His Word, that's my desire, and I'm asking the Holy Spirit to do the same thing through me that He wants to do, which is to reveal in Scripture 
His Son, so that those who honor the Son might honor the Father. And so my desire is that the Spirit of God will so work in me and so work in everybody else that what happens here on a Sunday morning is His work so that Christ is the center of it and He is lifted up and glorified. But that's not inspiration in the sense of, of writing out or inscripturating God's truth. It's not, it is partially illumination, but then there's, then comes in the giftedness of the Holy Spirit and the way that the Spirit of God works through the giftedness. And there's the power of preaching, which in the eyes of the world is foolishness, but to those who believe is the power of God unto salvation and is, and, and carries the power of God, that medium. So all of that is sort of working together in there. And sometimes in preaching, and anybody who teaches would know this, sometimes in teaching you have a palpable sense of the Spirit of God working. And sometimes in listening to somebody preach, you can have a palpable sense that the Spirit of God is working. And other times in preaching, you have no palpable sense and it feels like you're pushing a train. You just can't, you just, it's nothing. It feels like there's nothing there. But then at the same time, I, that's not a measure of whether or not the Spirit is working. The Spirit works sometimes in a palpable sense, sometimes more powerfully than in a palpable sense, but it's, it's not, it's not palpable. Everybody know what I mean by palpable? You can feel it, you know? So does that answer your question? Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta chew it over. It's not inspiration. It's partially it's illumination. It's the giftedness of the Spirit of God. It's providentially I'm trusting that God is going to use the effort, the energy that we put forth. And it's much, it's much the same as when I would say, uh, somebody who has the gift of helps and is using the spiritual gift of helps, you're, you're allowing the Spirit of God to work through you to minister to somebody else. That's the goal. And you're really doing it for somebody else to edify them. What I'm doing is the same thing essentially, but it's using the Word of God to encourage and edify people rather than a gift of serving or helping. Right. So there's a teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit that goes on today and he teaches through teachers and preachers. So I actually believe that when I sit in a congregation I listen to somebody preach the Word, if they're being faithful to the text of Scripture, I am hearing God speak to me. I'm hearing the Word of God expounded and it is unfolded, it is displayed, and I'm seeing the glory of God through this frail instrument, the preacher, and I believe that we as a people, when we sit under Scripture, whether I'm preaching or I'm listening, we are hearing God speak through the text in the way that He intends to speak to His people. Not in private revelations, but just as the Word of God is lifted up and we all behold the glory of Christ in the text of Scripture. We see God. We magnify Him. Our hearts are filled with wonder, love, and praise. That is how God is revealing Himself to us consistently. But it, it always goes back to His Word, which is the instrument that He uses to do that. Okay, so the... Uh, the Spirit is a person. He speaks. And those are all good questions, by the way. Something we haven't dealt with in quite a while, so it's good. Um, the Holy Spirit of God prays or intercedes for us. Romans chapter 8. He can be grieved. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He can be blasphemed. Matthew chapter 12. So all of those things indicate that He is a person, not just a power. He is a person. So that we establish the doctrine of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit's relationship to the Trinity that He, the Holy Spirit is not the Father and He is not the Son. He is a separate person entirely. He is not a thing. He is a person, and the Holy Spirit is God. So now let me ask you the question that we started with, because we need to wrap this up. On the spectrum between neglecting the Holy Spirit and blaspheming the Holy Spirit, where do you fall in there? And having answered that question, which direction do you lean, having fallen where you're at? Do you lean to which of those two extremes do you lean toward? Now I'll be, I'll confess to you that in times, in years past, I think I have fallen more towards this side of neglect of the Holy Spirit than falling that direction. And I actually 
lean toward this. I have to remind myself constantly that I'm worshiping a triune God. Not just Father and Son, but the Holy Spirit as well. The, the, the Holy Spirit sort of sits in the shadows, as it were, and magnifies the Father and the Son. And so it, it, he's not as prominently featured on the pages of Scripture as the Father and the Son are, because his role is to really glorify the Father and the Son and point our hearts and affections to them. But he is just as much God. So in past, I have sort of stepped over on this side of the spectrum. I'm trying to move back toward this way and be more toward the center where I want my worship and my praise and my my uh, light, my Christian life to more reflect an understanding that I'm worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I want this reflected in my prayers. So I have tried to be much more intentional in praying things to the Father and praying things to the Son and praying things to the Holy Spirit and worshiping all three and being aware of what all three have done. And it's, it's, it's meant that I need to be more intentional in that. And going through the Gospel of John, I think, has made at least me and hopefully us as a church more intentional about understanding the triune nature of God. So that, well, my next question would be then, do you think and do you in your prayer time believe that it is appropriate to praise, to worship, and to pray to the Holy Spirit? Yeah, it is. He is God, right? And He ought not to be neglected. And the Holy Spirit has done certain things for which He is worthy of our praise. He has regenerated us. He illuminates us. He has given us Scripture. He indwells us. He empowers us. He strengthens us. All of those things are things which He has done, which strengthen His people and for which He is worthy of our praise. And it is also appropriate, we're going to get to this in the message, because we're stealing, stealing a little bit from the message put in here. It is also appropriate to request of the Holy Spirit certain things. Request illumination. Request power for service. Request encouragement and comfort. Those things are appropriate to make the request of the Holy Spirit. And one last thing, and then we will close with this. And I got this out of John Owen's book on uh, meditations on the glory of Christ and the incarnation of the God-man. It's a title that's longer than most articles I've ever written, but that's the essence of it. It's meditations on the glory of Christ. Owen says, you know where in Scripture do you ever see somebody requesting something of the Father and then having to request it of the Son and request the same thing of the Spirit. In other words, when I pray for Brian to be healed or for doctors to have wisdom, I might pray this to the Father or to the Son or to the Holy Spirit, but there's no need to mention it to all three persons individually, as if we're speaking to all three persons, because to pray to the Father is to pray to God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to pray to the Son is to, at the same time, pray to all three members of the Trinity. So there are things which are requested or asked of the Holy Spirit and requested and asked of the Son and requested and asked of the Father, but you never see anybody saying, now, Father, I pray for Brian's healing. Son, I pray for Brian's healing. And Spirit, I pray for Brian's healing. As if all three persons need to be reminded of that. You never have that in Scripture, which is an indication that the three persons, though they are persons distinct and separate, they are the one God. All right? Okay, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for what you have revealed to us in Scripture and that it is a sufficient revelation of yourself. We know that you are our God and you are a triune God. And we thank you for the glory that you have manifested to us. We thank you for the work of all three persons in our salvation and in our redemption and in your constant preservation of us. So we ask that you would bless now these things to our hearts. Help us to meditate and think upon these things and to honor you as you are worthy of being honored and in a way that is appropriate to how you have revealed yourself. For the glory of our God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.